Hello everyone and welcome back to the Mole Pigs podcast. Today our guest is Tom Aldridge who will be talking to us about the physics of information from a molecular programming perspective. Also with me today are Anastasia. Hi. Boya. Hi. Georgios. Hello. And I'm Will. Tom is a Royal Society University Research Fellow in the Bioengineering Department, where he leads the Principles of Biomolecular Systems Group. His group probes the fundamental principles underlying complex biochemical systems through theoretical modelling, simulation and experiment. In particular, they focus on the interplay between the detailed biochemistry and the overall output of a process such as sensing, replication or self-assembly. They are inspired by natural systems and aim to explore the possibilities of engineering artificial analogs. Tom, hi. Hi. Thank you. So I believe you're planning on starting with a certain demonic thought experiment. What do demons have to do with information and thermodynamics? Uh, indeed. Yes, thank you. So um, this is, uh, we're referring to Maxwell's demon, uh, which is a, so I'm just bringing up the poster for myself here. Uh, which is a famous uh, thought experiment, as you say, from the 19th century. Um, so for those people who are less familiar, James Clerk Maxwell, one of the uh, fathers of uh, thermodynamics, and um, he was very worried about possible violations of the second law of thermodynamics. Um, uh, and the, the, one of the ways of saying the second law of thermodynamics is basically that if you have a system that is in equilibrium, um, then you can't get any useful work out of it. It's, 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 it's redundant. It's basically, um, if you've got, it's like saying, if you've got a battery, you can get useful um, power out of your battery, but when it's, when all the charges run out, when it's, when it's all passed from uh, uh, one terminal to the other, then um, the battery will have reached equilibrium and you can't get any more um, power out of it. You can't, you can't run your light or your radio or whatever. Um, so he was, he, what he knew um, on, on what was being really discussed a lot at the time, actually, with the, with the advent of statistical mechanics, was that equilibrium systems aren't completely static. They show fluctuations. Um, and... What he was essentially worried about was that you could take an equilibrium system, which is showing fluctuations, and you could measure those fluctuations and, based on those measurements, perform a feedback operation that would enable you to get work out of your equilibrium system, to use it to power an engine, basically. Um, and the example he gave is illustrated in the in the in the picture in the top left of of, of the poster, um, he didn't do it quite so um, uh, graphically. But the the idea is that if I start off with a box which has got particles particles in a box, initially there are a fixed temperature, so everything is uniform. There's no um, uh, there's no gradients of energy or anything like that. There's no currents in the system. Um, and if, if I give you a box at temperature T and that's all I give you, then you can't get work out of that. It's like a dead battery. Um, and he said, OK, let's imagine putting a dividing line in the middle of that box. And um, I'll have a little, little trap door 
in the middle of that dividing line. So the trapdoor can be open to let particles through in either direction. Uh, and he said, well, the fluctuations in this system would be occasionally there'll be a particle coming towards the door and sometimes the fast particles will be going in one direction and sometimes the slow particles will be going in another. Pretty uncontroversial. Then he said, okay, let's imagine I have, and I think he, he called it a, a being of finite intelligence or something like that. He, did, he never used the word demon. Demon is, has, has since been applied. Um, uh, he imagined that some, there was something in there that was able to actually measure the speed of individual particles. And this thing would open the door if the fast particles were going in one direction and close it if the fast particles were going in the other. And similarly, the slow particles he'd let go in the opposite direction. And by doing that, what the, what the demon would do is separate the fast particles from the slow particles. And you'd end up with all the particles with a high velocity, high kinetic energy, let's say on the left-hand side, as you're looking at this picture, and all the particles with a low velocity on the right-hand side. And if you've got two uh, boxes where the particles have different average kinetic energy, that means you've got two boxes which are at a different temperature. You started off with a system where you had two halves, both at the same temperature, and by letting the fast things through in one direction and the slow things through in the other, you've got a high temperature part and a low temperature part. And two, two things at different temperature is sort of the canonical thing that you can get energy out of. That's what a steam engine does for you, right? That's, that's, that's what 19th century people were thinking about when they were thinking about how to power things. So you've gone from an equilibrium system where the temperature is uniform and you've turned it into one where I've got high temperature and low temperature. I can plug my engine into that. I can get work out. So if the demon can do what it's doing for free, big if, then we've apparently violated the second law of thermodynamics because we've taken an equilibrium system, effectively pushed it out of equilibrium, and then we can use that thing to drive an engine. Yeah, so this is probably where people start to, well, hopefully you get some alarm bells and think, well, we shouldn't be able to do this right. And uh, there's yeah, quite a lot of controversy about this, I guess. But now that we've got molecular computers and are able to program on that scale, um, I guess it kind of feels like maybe we might be able to implement it. Yeah, I mean, so there's definitely been a renewed interest in... So first thing to say is, I mean, I don't, I don't know what Maxwell himself thought, but I think he was... I don't think he thought you could violate the second law of thermodynamics. He was just saying, I'm not sure how this works out. Um, and there's been... For 150 years, people still are still arguing about this. And I would say, actually, I, I will give my opinion, which I think is right. I would say the majority of scientists don't have the opinion that I'm about to give you. Um, uh, so, take, yeah, I mean, I, I, hopefully I will convince everybody. Um, but the, um, yeah, the reason it's become newly relevant, and I'll, we'll, I guess we'll come on to this, is because exactly, as you say, we are becoming more and more able to control and observe and model the physics of things that are happening at an individual molecular scale. And it turns out that biological systems 
are often doing things that look a bit like this, um, which is one of the reasons why the question, the question is relevant. Um, so, as you say, it's it, the alarm bells are ringing because you said, okay, if this demon can do this thing for free, um, and there are a lot of question marks about, well, what's it doing? First of all, it's it's measuring the speed of this particle. And then it's opening this trapdoor. It's not obvious that you could do either of those things without putting in work, putting in effort. And if you've put in work, then that would explain, might explain how you've managed to push the other system out of equilibrium. Um, and in general, it's reasonably accepted that the opening and the closing of the trapdoor, if you are operating in some ideal limit where it's frictionless in a nice way, that itself is in principle free. In practice, it's not, but in principle, it could be. So people don't tend to think about the actual mechanism of the opening and closing of the trapdoor. They tend to focus on this, um, what's going on with this measurement and feedback there. Now, it's really hard to understand, like, the, like there's so many abstract things in this model that it's, it's hard to it's hard to be concrete about what's going on. So a big step forward was um, from Shillard in the 19, 1929, I think. Um, you can read the original manuscript. I think it's in Hungarian, um, or you can you can read the English translation. Um, oh, I spelt it wrong in this PDF. I do apologise. <laughs> I've missed an I. Um, so. Um, Yes, so he proposed a simpler version of this where you can really do a bit more of the maths. Um, but the essence is the same. So if you start on the left-hand side, the second figure in the, in the, in the PDF, Shillard's engine, you start on the left-hand side, what we've got is we've got a single particle in a box now. Um, and we've got a divider in the middle. And the particle can be on one side of this divider or the other, 50-50 chance. And what we've also got is a weight attached to a pulley. And the weight, you can attach the weight to one side of the divider or the other side of the divider. Right? So there are four possible configurations of the system initially. Um, is that clear? Is that clear from the picture? Yep. Good. Okay. So um, what you can then do is say, if I manage to attach my weight to the right side of, as in the correct side of this divider, then I could use the, the bouncing around of the particle on the other side to, to, to push the um, piston and pull the weight upwards. So actually, I think what you want to do is attach them both to the right-hand side or both to the left-hand side. And if you do that, the particle will bounce against the divider. And if you let the divider move, it will pull, it can pull the weight up. Lifting a weight against gravity is sort of the dictionary definition of doing work. Um, and so if you did this, you could, and that's, that's shown in, in figure C, if you were able to align the particle and the weight, you could lift the weight up by allowing the particle to expand into the greater volume. Um, and then at, at the end of the experiment, you'd have your weight 
lifted up and your particle would now be anywhere within the volume again, right? Um, and then you could reset your system by taking your divider out and putting it back in to the middle. Um, and if you did that, then you can work out how much work the particle would do on the divider because it's just an expansion of a gas into twice the volume. So you can say you can basically do an integral of the pressure times the volume change, and that tells you how much it lifts the weight up. Um, and what you get is that for a doubling of the volume, you get a log two multiplied by the Boltzmann constant multiplied by the temperature. That's the work you get out from the expansion step, step C in this figure. When you put the divider back in, do you need to do work to put it back in? No, not in an ideal sense. So in the, um, in the like the trapdoor, you can imagine opening and closing a frictionless trapdoor without doing work. You can also imagine picking up and putting down a, a divider without doing work. Um, my, my major criticism of this is in practice, you, can't, you couldn't see how this would work. Um, so I will get to the fact that, yeah, it doesn't actually like, although it's, it's easier to understand than, than Maxwell's demon, it's still like hard to understand, like hard to imagine. It might be worth at this point just saying that KT log two is about 10 to the minus 21 joules. So you can think about what that means while, while you're listening um, or like a hundredth of an electron volt. I mean, yeah, a very small amount of energy. Mm. But you could keep doing it and keep doing it and then... The thing is, um, if you can violate, if you can violate the second law, even if, even a tiny little bit, then basically all physics falls apart. <laughs> like it's it's a bit like when I don't know a few a few years ago there was a they thought they measured, um, or they thought they might have measured faster than light neutrinos in Italy. I mean, I don't think they did think that. They just wanted other people to show them where there was a problem, um, because you'd have to throw out everything, right? <laughs> Faster than light neutrino. That that I mean, the whole the whole way the standard model is constructed would would not work. Yeah, I remember that. I think didn't a year later they then find that there was some kind of leak of current somewhere. Yeah, and... I think a cable was longer than they thought it was, or something like that. Yeah. So um, so it, it would be similar, arguably worse if um, if if the second law of thermodynamics turned out not to be valid. So even if it was just a little bit not valid, as Will says, you could just keep doing it again and again and then and then and you can get an arbitrary large amount of work out for free and and we've solved the world's energy problems but um, we've created a whole load of new ones um so yeah so what Sillard said is this measurement step here at going from a to b he said if you can what you're really doing is you're correlating the position of the weight with the position of the particle. You've got two random variables. Both are initially left or right. In this case, I've called them zero or one. And you're setting them to both be the same. You're setting them to be zero, zero, or one, one. Left, left, right, right. Um, and you've made this correlation, but the... There is, there's no physical interaction between that's holding the weight and the particle on the same side of the box. They're not, they're not, they're not 
It's not that the particle is kind of attracting the weight to that side of the box. If it was, the work extraction step in C wouldn't work because they'd be stuck on that side of the box, right? They'd be stuck. Like the whole point is that the, the particle needs to go, be able to go over to the other side in order to pull the weight up. Um, so there's this correlation without a physical interaction. And Szilard called these, this an ominous correlation. It's his choice of phrase, um, which I quite like. And he said that if you can create ominous correlations like this without putting in work, you would violate the second law of thermodynamics. Therefore, work is required to create ominous correlations, which would be correlations between degrees of freedom where there's no, there's no sort of energetic term in the, in the Hamiltonian of that, that couples them directly, or, or even indirectly, actually. And there's, no, there's no energetic bias for that correlation. Does that make sense? So, so um, maybe put in, a, in another sense, you can also draw an information theoretic view from this, right? That there's like a bit of information of left or right, true or false, uh, as you put zero and one, and then you're learning that and putting that into another system. Is that a fair assessment? So Szilard, Szilard was writing before the advent of information theory. Um, and I think one of the main reasons that, so I think, I mean, I think Szilard was 100% right. He was totally right. And um, the prevailing thought for the last 50 years has been Szilard was wrong. Uh, and I think if he'd had information theory at his disposal at the time, he would have been able to give an argument that was clearer and therefore that we wouldn't have had this 50 years of, of, of confusion. So would you say Landau's argument is clearer? Well, we'll come to Landau. We'll come to okay. Landau. Yeah. So, so, but, 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 but if you want to translate it into information theory, the, 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 it, it goes very nicely, which is why it would be really nice, which is that, Information in, in information theory, um, if I have two random variables, which in this case are my this particle, which can be on either side, and my weight, if one of them tells me about the other, if knowing the, where the particle is would tell me where the weight was, I have what is called mutual information between the two degrees of freedom. Right? And what... Szilard wasn't able to say precisely, but we now know is that if you have mutual information between two degrees of freedom that don't have an interaction with each other, then the free energy you've stored is equal to that mutual information multiplied by KT. So exactly, it is exactly this information theoretic argument. So Szilard says, making a measurement, it, creating an ominous correlation, which we would say is creating mutual information between non-interacting degrees of freedom. That's costly, and that's what explains the second law. And he would say Maxwell's demon over here uh, in, in figure one, what it's doing, I mean, I don't, he didn't ever quite say this, but this is really what he's getting at, is that what the demon is doing is correlating the state of the particles with the state of the door. 
right? That's really what it, that's really what it has to do in order to get them to go through in the right direction, right? Um, and there's a cost to doing that. And that cost is what pays for you to generate this non-equilibrium system. Now, Szilard said that in 1929. Subsequently, um, people got a lot more interested. Like what Szilard was trying to do was get rid of the demon, right? Here, we've not, we've not actually talked about a demon. There's no sense in which a measurement needs to go through the brain of something else before being put into the, into the system. But, but since then, there's been much more focus. People, people want to invoke the demon, right? People want to say, for example, um, the, the, uh, the, the, the demon needs to create a measurement in its brain. And then that, and then it uses that to, to, to open the door. That's pointless, right? That's a, race, that's a waste of time. Just, just use your measuring device to directly correlate the, the door and the particle or the weight and the particle. Don't, don't store it in your brain. Then you've, then you've done something extraneous. So you think that the, because the way I always understood um, this and then the resolution, and so I'm probably the kind of person you're saying is, is missing the point probably here, is um, that, or, and as far as I understood Landau's argument, it's kind of you have a demon with a brain and it's empty. And then he looks at the box or he looks at Shilai's engine, learns whether it's left or right, and then puts that memory in his brain and uses that to control the mechanism and then repeats that process. And then you're just kind of moving that, that problem from the, the environment to, to getting rid of that information. So you're saying that that's kind of getting getting away with it and not not the right way to think about this i think it, i think it's worth a dive into this in more detail because this you what you've given is exactly the standard discussion so i mean landauer what landauer was working in the 50s and he was thinking about computers and initially his famous paper he doesn't mention maxwell's demon at all and doesn't propose a resolution of maxwell demon what he says is if i have a load of bits which are in an unknown state then and I want to set them all to zero, which he calls erasing them to zero, then that requires a work input. That requires effort from, from me. And the reason is that if I've got a load of bits that are in an unknown state, that means I've got a, a high entropy system. Uh, and if I push them all into state zero, I've kind of halved the number of states that each one is in and so i have to put kt log two of work in to do that it's exactly the same as if i want to compress a gas uh, a single particle gas to half the volume i need to do this it's the same argument basically um and he said so he said basically if if i want if i have a load of bits that are random and i want to set them all to zero that costs me effort um, and later, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Later, Bennett said, ah, this is the resolution to Maxwell's demons paradox and Szilard's engine. So he said, if you look at my figure, he said, don't think of the, um, what, what he said is, 
instead of um, the process I described initially, where I jumped straight from A to B, going from this four states where I could either particle or weight could be on left or right hand side to the bit where they're both on one side or both on the other. He said, no, what you should do first is if you erase the state of the, of the weight, so it's in state zero, so it's always on the left-hand side in this picture, then you can do this measurement for free, right? So he says going from two states to two states, you can do that for free, and then you can get work out in going from state B to state C uh, and D, and then you go back to state A, and you complete the cycle, you do your erase again, you set yourself back to zero. So he says, well, look, you only need to put the work in, the work that you need to put in to compensate for what you've done, you put in at this erase. So it's the erasure that saves the second law. Now, nothing. there's nothing, none of the steps up until that final sentence would I have a problem with. But that final sentence kind of implies that you've, you've broken the second law until you do this final bit where you reset stuff at the end, right? Which you haven't. If, you, like, if, you, if you'd broken the second law and then for some period of time, then you could just decide not to do the final step of the process, walk away, and you've broken the second law, right? There's no... Yeah, so so the way I viewed that is that I guess you've kind of got a generalized second law where you need to take into account information as well as entropy. And so then you don't need to, if you don't do the erasure, if you don't do the reset, then you've kind of moved, say, maybe heat into information. But that ultimately, when you want to get rid of that um at some point later you know you've you've kind of used up your specially prepared memory device and so i don't yeah what, what's your view on that i mean you're right yes the 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 point is that the 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 memory device you started with you've changed in the cycle and you've consumed effectively you put the what you did was you took your memory device you erased it which put it out of equilibrium and then you use that to power your cycle. Right. Um, and unless you reset it at the end, then, then you haven't, um, what you'll have done is you'll have consumed one resource to pay for another one, which is fine. I mean, that that's consistent with the second law, but um, it kind of puts far too much emphasis on this erase part you don't need to do an erasure. You could do the measurement directly without doing an erasure. The point is that going from an uncorrelated state to a correlated state is what costs, that costs the effort. Now you can choose to do it by first erasing your memory and then setting your memory equal to your data, or you can just directly correlate your data with the memory. Um, and the, the issue with the emphasis on erasure is it, it, it leads you to say things a bit like you just said, which is you need a generalized second law where you have information as an extra thing. You don't. Information is just the, the, the information entropy is just the physical entropy. It's the same thing. 
it all makes sense at every stage of the process. Therm the thermodynamics works at each stage. Um, what now the way you described it doesn't worry me so much. What what really worries me is when people people start in this picture. We're only talking about the weight and the particle, right? We don't have a demon, but people talk about the demon making the measurement and then having to set and then have having a finite size brain so they can only make a finite number of measurements before they have to reset it. And that's what saves the second law and things like that are just wrong, right? That's just wrong. Um, they're saying that the, the demon violates the second law until its brain is full, at which point it needs to reset it. No, it doesn't. Um, and, it, and, and invoking the demon just makes things more complicated because you've now got something that you don't actually have a model of in the system. So, there's, I mean, I'm not, I'm not 100% certain of how convincing I've been here, but my, my fundamental point is that basically the act of going from this state where you have uncorrelated things that don't interact with each other, which is state A, to this state where you've got correlated things that, that don't interact with each other, that's taking an equilibrium thing and putting it out of equilibrium, which requires work, effort to do. And if you want, you can do it by first doing an erasure, but it's, that's just a choice. Um, and once you, the reason I, the real reason that I want to put the emphasis on that, on the fact that the correlated state is a non-equilibrium state that creates effort to, takes effort to create, is because biology does this all the time and people kind of haven't been thinking about these processes in that way because they've been thinking, they've been looking for where's the erasure rather than where's the bit where it does some correlating things. Do you see what I mean? So um, that, that's why I think it's kind of important to, 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 to think about it that way. Um, now, Dillard's engine is easier to think about than Maxwell's demon, but it's still a bit abstract. The measurements, the feedback step is easy, right? The, you can do the mathematics of the expansion of the piston, right? In practice, it's a highly idealized model. And in fact, I would challenge you to be able, what you'd actually need to do is gradually change the weight that you are pulling up as, as the force that the particle is exerting drops in order to do this quasi-statically. Uh, in practice, impossible. Right. Um, but that is nothing compared to the measurement, which how does that work? I've just like magically put my weight on one side of the box. Right. So so all I've said is that requires log two. I haven't really shown you how to do it. And I would argue that in all of these mechanical models that people have made. Nobody's ever really made a system where you can model the correlation stage, i.e. the measurement, and then mo model the extraction of the work from the correlation in the same system. And because you can't do that, it's really hard to, to be certain about what's going on. It, like, it, just, it, just, it just opens the door for all these confusions, right? If you, if you have some step where magic fairy dust, something happens, 
than what's going on during the magic fairy dust. Um, and that's the second thing that if Sillard had had a system where he was able to, because he, he had a system where he made a correlation and he had a system where he extracted work from a correlation, but he didn't have a system where he could do both because it's really hard. What you need to do is have a system where, first of all, A influences B, and then for another period, B influences A, but that's really hard to imagine. How do you actually manage that mechanically, basically? And so my other reason for thinking about Szilard's engine and Maxwell dealing with molecules, the first one I sort of hinted at was biological systems do things a bit like this. And the second reason is because you can actually build a thought, at least a thought experiment level, a molecular Szilard engine where all the steps are explicit. So there's no magic fairy dust. It's an idealized model, but, but, but it's, it is, you can go through each step. So that's kind of what I've outlined very, very briefly in the third box. So the idea here is that I have um, two, I have, I have a small box that contains uh, molecule X, which can be in two states, zero or one, and molecule M, which can be in two states, zero or one. Um, uh, and in fact, these are, these are inspired by um, uh, phosphorylation cycles in molecular signaling systems. So if you were thinking in that, those contexts, X0 would be unphosphorylated and X1 would be phosphorylated. Same uh, um, And these um, molecules can catalyze the interconversion of each other between these two states. Okay, so that is, again, reasonably easy to imagine, but there are real biological systems that kind of do have this um, mutual catalysis behavior, um, but you could also imagine designing it using DNA nanotechnology and DNA strand displacement. You can, because you can design pretty much any reaction network you like, you could design one. This is not a particularly complicated one, right? Um, um, Right, but the important thing is that they, these reactions, it's not just X and M involved in them, there's also some molecular fuel that enables you um, to push the reaction in one direction or the other. So if it was phosphorylation, that molecular fuel will be ATP, right? So uh, let's say X naught would convert M naught to M1, uh, or M1 back to M0 in this figure, actually, um, and it would it would consume ATP to do so. Um, now, crucially, X1, which also is a catalyst for the same transition, if it couples to a different fuel, so actually in um, biology, um, ATP you can you can catalyze the phosphorylation by by consuming ATP. And you can catalyze the dephosphorylation by just encouraging the um, molecule to release its phosphate into solution. So it's not exactly the same transition, right? You can, you can take a phosphate from ATP and produce ADP, and that can be the reaction that's catalyzed by X naught. 
and you can ha- and you can have you can release phosphate or take it back from solution, and that can be the reaction catalyzed by X1. And if those reactions are not the same, they don't have the same fuel coming into them, one of them can tend to go in one direction and one of them can tend to go in the other. Is that clear? And that's actually a very common biological motif. Uh, Push-pull networks, you you have a species which can switch between two states, and there's one catalyst which is coupled to one fuel, which is pushing it in one direction, and another catalyst which is coupled to another fuel that's pushing it in the other direction. The only thing here that is kind of pushing what biology does is to say not only do we have that for X naught on M, X acting on M, we also have M doing the same thing to X with its own separate fuels that it can talk to. Um, so the diagram, the diagram in the bottom left of the third image is showing X naught converting M1 to M0, X1 converting M0 to M1, M0 converting X1 to X0, and M1 converting X0 to X1. And they can all do this because there are four different fuels that they can talk to, and the fuels push. If the fuels are there in the right concentrations, they'll push the thing in the right direction. So that is a chemical reaction network, which is not trivial, but not insane right there's there's only about 12 species in that reaction network and you could imagine designing it out of dna now how can we turn this into a Szilard engine well if we start off with none of the fuels for the interconversion of x that means that m can't catalyze x's change because the fuels that push the reaction aren't there so then all you've got is X, which is our data here, setting our memory. And if X doesn't change, then we can use X naught to push the memory to M naught, and we can use X1 to push the memory to M1. So if we start off with them uncorrelated and basically slowly ramp up the fuel concentration so that the uh, bias for X naught converting M1 to M naught gets bigger and the bias for X1 converting M naught to M1 gets bigger, then you can gradually push the system until basically the, the, the memory and the, the X and the M are perfectly correlated. So that's the diagram at the top here where you see these fuel boxes going past with the arrow going down. So the idea there is you slowly move some uh, buffers where the fuels get more and more extreme. So they're they're basically higher and higher concentrations of the fuel that is pushing the reaction in the direction that you want. And that gives you um, eventually full conversion. And actually you you can calculate how much chemical work you do, because effectively what you do is you take fuel molecules from a high concentration buffer and deposit them in a low concentration buffer, which is um, using up their free energy. And you can you can do an integral, which is a bit like the integral that you do to calculate the work in Szilard's engine, and you can calculate that you, it costs kT log 2 
to correlate these bits with each other. And then you basically just reverse the process. You, 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 you basically freeze the memory. So you take the fuels for X and M uh, for conversion of M away and you bring the fuels for converting X and then M acts to convert X. And because M and X are coupled to each other, uh, correlated with each other, then you can access the right thing, basically. Just like um, in the Sillard's engine, because the weight and the particle are on the right side, you get work out. Just similarly here, because if you have X in state zero and M in state zero and X in state or X in state one, M in state one, then as you move these buffers past the system, you will gradually decorrelate X and M if you do it in the right order. And you can, you can get work back out doing that. You can basically transfer fuels from a low concentration buffer to a high concentration buffer. So doing the opposite thing that you did when you were doing the measurement. And you can do the integral and you get out that if you do it reversibly and carefully, you get KT log two out again and everything cancels out. So you've basically moved some, some chemical free energy from your initial fuel system into the correlations between X and M and then back out again, back into yeah, the other fuel system. Yeah, exactly. It's just, I mean, it's useless, right? It just shuffles free energy from one fuel buffer to another. Um, but then it should be useless because you shouldn't be able to get work out of uh, an equilibrium system. Um, but what you see here, because you can do the whole cycle. That is the whole cycle of the Sillard engine. And, it, you know, the calculations aren't that hard, right? They're, they're just, they're integrals of um, Boltzmann factors, basically. Um, you see that you put the work in and you see that you get the work out and you see that, indeed, the state you create when you have X0 and M0 correlated is one, is a non-equilibrium state of high free energy. Uh, and that you need to put effort in to create it. And everything is just really explicit. There's no magic. There's no need for, there's no need for like an extended second law, right? The information, the information bit of the second law is just that the entropy of X and M is lower if their states are correlated. And that's just what entropy is, right? If there's less uncertainty in the state, then there's less entropy. So, Part of what I do, it's slightly pathological, you could say. I work in this sort of like physics and information field, and I go around saying it's much more simple and boring than everyone pretends it is, right? Uh, and I, I strongly feel that everyone thinks it's a lot more exciting and confusing and mystical because they don't, they imagine things that aren't concrete. But one, the one thing... Landauer really did say that it was really helpful is information is physical, right? You need, you have to represent your information in a physical degree of freedom. And once you do that, it, and, you, and, you, and you force yourself to actually make everything explicit, you're like, oh no, actually it's quite boring, right? I just reduce the entropy of the system and then I increase it again. And in increasing it, I get the work back out. Simple. Um, but why is it interesting, nonetheless, and the reason it is interesting, nonetheless, is because biology does this. Biology creates correlations between non-interacting degrees of freedom all the time. Um, 
And if you look at the, I mean, before I move on, that's basically all I'm going to talk about. Siddharth's engine and Maxwell's team. Is that is that clear to everybody? Uh, I have a question about the decouple process. So we also assume that that's an idea process for removing the fuel for for the first fuel. Okay. Yeah, it's so so. This, I mean, I could go into detail about the assumptions that you need to make here, but you need to assume that. Um, so basically, with the first, if you just look at x naught converting m one to m naught, right? What what you do? What you'd actually imagine is that you'd have a fuel. That reaction would be x naught plus m naught. Sorry, x naught plus m one plus fuel goes to x naught plus m naught plus waste, right? So you have a fuel and a waste molecule, and the analogy would be ATP and ADP. And when you start the process, when you start the measurement process, you start with no concentration of any either of your fuels. And at that point, that reaction, you would assume that reaction has zero rate because some of the reactants are missing, right? Now, in 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 reality, you would have some finite rate of leak reactions, and that would actually limit how slowly and carefully you could do things. But in principle, you could imagine that rate was arbitrarily small. And what you do in order to do the measurement, you increase both concentrations of both the fuel and the waste, but you increase the fuel higher than you increase the waste. And then what that does is it pushes the reaction in one direction, right? If I've got 100 times as much fuel as waste, the reaction that uses the fuel is 100 times more likely than the reaction that uses the waste, right? Um, and, then, and then you end up in a state, so you, you gradually do that and you gradually make your measurement and you, you get stuck in the state. If the fuel becomes arbitrarily high in concentration relative to the waste, then the only reaction you're ever going to see is the one that uses the fuel, and therefore you're going to be in state M0 100% of the time. And then what you do is you suddenly, you because you know, what, what, the way we're changing the fuel is we're moving these buffers past the system, right? You, you then just keeping that same ratio of the fuel concentration to the waste concentration, you take both of them gradually to zero. And at that point, all that taking them to zero does, you slow down the reactions of both of them, but you still keep the bias of which one, the relative bias of one relative to the other. And eventually you go to having no reactions at all and you're frozen and you're frozen with the bit in the state that you want it to be in. Is that, is that answering your question? Yeah. It is a little bit fiddly. It's not. It's not the least fiddly thing in the world to imagine. But, but, but you can like if you, there are references at the bottom of the of the page, you can go through the calculation um, there. Okay. So I go on to the biology stuff. Cool. So, um, right. So the inspiration for this this molecular silide engine comes from a real biological system. And that real biological system are cell surface receptors. So if you look at these sort of Y-shaped things in the fourth box, those are supposed to be 
receptors that would sit in the surface, you know, the, um, uh, the membrane of a cell. And this little blue circular molecule, if it's present, it can bind to the state of the receptor and it can unbind from the receptor. And this is your classic story about how the um, cell can measure the concentration of some ligand in the outside world. And that might be a chemical signal in, it might be a hormone or it could be food. Um, if you wanted to do chemotaxis, it could be all sorts of things. Now, this is a um, potentially a, a noisy process. Um, there's limited real estate on the surface of a cell. Uh, and if you've only got a few receptors and you're looking for a few molecules, then the instantaneous state of your receptors is going to be a very noisy signature of what's the concentration of that molecule in your environment. So Bergen Purcell famously argued that what you could do is basically time integrate the state of the receptors. And that's basically, that's taking an average, that's effectively taking an average, which will suppress your fluctuations if you take your average for long enough. Um, uh, and what a colleague of mine, Peter Ryan Wald said is, okay, what's the actual physics of how you would do that time integration? Um, and what the cells have is readout molecules that can be converted by the receptor to an active state if the ligand is bound to the receptor and they can be deactivated if the ligand is not bound to the receptor. So you can see this is exactly like, if you think of the receptor as like the data X and the, the readout molecule is like the memory M, um, the interconversion of the state of the readout between its off and its on state is catalyzed by the two different states of the, of the receptor. And um, what this means is that you can store the state of the, read, the receptor in, in your readouts. And then you can measure your readouts and they will give you some, if you've got more readouts than you've got receptors, they will give you more data on what was the state of your receptor over a longer period of time than just from looking at the receptors alone. It's like each one of them has taken a sample of the receptor at some point in the past. Um, and what Peter, Peter Ryan and his, his postdoc did is analyze what, what are the energetics of that process. And, and what are the, you don't just need energy, you also need like a at least a certain number of receptors and you, uh, readouts and you need the, the time scale to be slow enough to actually take an average and, and, and these things. But the important part of the story for us is that what are they doing here? You're correlating the state of the readout with the receptor. And what is absolutely crucial for time integration is that the readout needs to be able to diffuse away from the receptor, have its own existence, whilst the receptor undergoes a change to a different state. Because if it couldn't do that, then you wouldn't actually be able to time integrate the signal over fluctuations, right? If the receptor 
if the if the readout only held the memory for as long as the receptor held the current state for, then that that wouldn't be saving the data. You wouldn't be integrating over time. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think isn't isn't a classical example of this bacterial chemotaxis. Exactly. That yeah, like they will they will time integrate the concentration at which they sense their surroundings and they'll they'll swim for that particular period of time in one direction. Yeah, so there's there's all sorts of things going on in bacterial chemotaxis, including they kind of they kind of take a derivative, um, but in order to take the derivative, they've got to first do the time integration. So yes, they have exactly a system like this. But the the point I'm trying to get at is that you need the state of the receptor and the state of the readout to be. You need to set the state of the receptor with the state of the readout. And then you need that receptor to hold that state without the, re- the receptor. You need the readout to hold that state for a long time without interacting with the receptor because the receptor might have changed. Um, and that's exactly the same story we had with Szilard's engine, right? We needed to correlate the position of the weight and the position of the particle. And we needed to do that without having them permanently interacting with each other, because if we if they were stuck to each other, then we couldn't use them to extract the work. So it's the same thing that you need to do. Um, and so this circuit here that functions with these catalytic readout motifs consumes ATP, consumes free energy, it's active. And the reason it has to do that is because it has to make all these measurements. And it has to make these measurements, has to correlate non-interacting degrees of freedom, and that takes effort. And the reason that it doesn't get that back is because it doesn't complete the cycle of Szilard's engine. It takes the measurements, but it's not interested in using the measurements to extract work back out, right? It, it just forget, it, it just, the measurements just get repeatedly overwritten. So it's not carefully getting the work back out of its measurements, but it is having to make them. And that is what is costing it energy. Um, and it's you can if you if you spend your time trying to describe this process in terms of erasure, you get very confused because there's no actual erasure step, right? There's no point where the system all the bits get set to zero. They just get the readout is just copying the receptor, right? So. Um, it's much more helpful to think about making a measurement, correlating things is costly, and that's what this thing has to do. Um, Arguably more fundamental is um, the things I'm showing on the right-hand side here, which are the processes of the central dogma of molecular biology. So DNA replication, RNA transcription, and... um, protein uh, translation. So these processes, what happened? I've got a polymer, which is a sequence of nucleotides, DNA or RNA. And I take that sequence and I produce a new polymer whose sequence is determined by the template. And that new polymer is either DNA, RNA or a protein. And during the process of producing this copy, the, the units interact with each other. The units of the template interact with the units of the copy. But at the end of transcription or at the end of translation, 
the protein needs to diffuse away from its mRNA. The mRNA needs to diffuse away from its DNA. And there's two reasons for this. One is because it needs to go off and function somewhere in the cell, and it wouldn't be able to have its function if it was stuck to the template. But the deeper one is, well, why, why is this process needed to make proteins in the first place? Why do you need to use a templated process to make proteins? The reason is that there are 20 amino acids, types of amino acid in your cells. And I think the cells make about 20,000 different proteins or are capable of making about 20,000 different proteins. There just isn't enough information in the interactions of, pro of amino acids to specify, take these 20 ingredients and form exactly these 20,000 products and not a load of crap. Right. You just it's just impossible. And, and Stanislas Leibler and Arvin Murugan have some derivations on actually how many things you can you can realistically how many separate things you can self assemble with a certain number of ingredients and 20 won't get you to 20,000. Um, and what this means is that you need to use a template. So what, what the template saves us because the template says what I'm going to do first is assemble a chain of these amino acids. So I'm going to give you the sequence of amino acids in a chain. And then given that information, the sequence will fold upon itself. And that's what saves proteins. But in order for that to be useful, in order for that to have solved your problem, you need to get the template back again. Because if every time you created a protein, you consumed your fundamental template, then you'd need to make a new template for every protein. And then you're back to exactly the same problem of, of assembling a really complicated thing from a very small number of ingredients. In fact, you'd have made it worse because DNA has only got four ingredients rather than 20. So, so you, I would argue the most important thing about the central dogma processes is that you produce a correlation between the sequences of these things and then they separate. And that means that you've produced a non-equilibrium system because you've created correlations between things that don't interact with each other anymore. And once you realize that, you realize why we've been really bad at building synthetic systems that do similar things. What we're incredibly good at in DNA nanotechnology is doing self-assembly, right? Beautiful things assembled by labs across the world, and you don't even need to be that good at molecular biology or chemistry to do it, right? That, that's, that's what DNA nanotechnology does for you. Um, but what, what's, the, what's the defining way you design these things? You say, okay, I want to build a robot. I want to build a robot shape. Therefore, I'm going to design the robot shape as the equilibrium state of my system and hope that the strands find it. That's, that's the design mechanism, right? It's not going to work here because you need to, this, the end point you want to get to is a non-equilibrium state. It, in fact, it's not just out of equilibrium, it's miles away from equilibrium because equilibrium would be a completely random product rather than a very specific sequence. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do in our lab. We're trying to 
can we use nucleic acid nanotechnology to build synthetic versions of these polymer copying, what we call them polymer copying operations, that allow us to produce non-equilibrium products determined by a template rather than an equilibrium assembly. Um, cool. So, uh, recent experiments from my lab um, are not done by me. Um, I should emphasize at the top of this poster are a load of names of the people who've done this work with me. Um, don't, don't think I've done them all. And certainly I haven't done any experiments because I went into the lab and pipetted a couple of times and that was a disaster. Um, but what we're trying to do in uh, Javier's uh, PhD is come up with an alternative to toehold mediated strand displacement. This is arguably the defining reaction of dynamic DNA nanotechnology. And what happens is shown in this fifth box at the top. You have a duplex between, at the moment, between strands labeled T and N. Um, and one of them has an overhanging toehold. And you add an invader strand that is complementary to the whole of T. And so it can bind to the toehold and basically kick the incumbent N off. And that displacement process, you can looks pretty simple, but basically you can you can use it to engineer a whole host of um, chemical reaction networks. It's the basis, the basis of dynamic DNA nanotechnology. And it's fantastic. But what it's really rubbish at is being the basis of something that looks like, if you go back to the previous uh, picture, this templated copying mechanism. So um, what we need is something like this subfigure labeled C in the bottom left. What we need is a process where there's recognition interactions between the template and the copy molecules, but that those recognition interactions are inherently transient. So eventually they break and that allows the copy to separate from the template. The recognition motif in DNA strand displacement is this toehold. So if you go back to the toehold mediated strand displacement picture at the top of the fifth box, what you see is that at the end of the process, the toehold, which is quite short, only usually only about six bases, that binding is typically fairly transient on its own. So you'd be like, okay, maybe this will do the job for us. But at the end of the displacement process, the toehold is adjacent to a long contiguous binding domain, which is really sticking the thing in place. And the toehold and that long binding domain actually act cooperatively and really stick the thing together. So your recognition domains are basically consumed. And it's difficult to avoid that. So what we've tried to design is an alternative strand displacement topology where you recognize, instead of, you recognize a domain in one strand, but then you bind to the other strand, ripping it off its original partner and leaving you in a position where you can still detach your recognition domain. So that's what's shown in this handhold mediated strand displacement diagram. So, same as before, except the initial TN complex has this thing that we're calling a handhold. Everyone see that? Yeah. Okay. The invader binds to the handhold 
And this handhold will come in typically eight, nine bases, something like that. Binds to the handhold. And then if it was strand displacement, normal total mediated strand displacement, what it would do is it would kick the blue strand off, right? That would be conventional strand displacement. But what it does instead is it binds to the blue strand and pulls that off the red one, pulls it off the incumbent. At the end of that branch migration step, what you're left with is just the handhold stuck to N, right? So it's unlike in the toehold mediated strand displacement, you haven't sequestered your handhold with more base pairs next to it. And so it can, it can if that handhold is short enough, it can detach. Um, and what that enables us, and we'll see, what we'll see in the, in the next box is that enables us to template a non-equilibrium assembly. But first of all, does this work as an idea? So that's what the, the um, heat map below shows. And I'm sorry the quality isn't that high, but the, the, along the x-axis, I've managed to cut off the label, but it's the length of the handhold in base pairs. And along the y-axis is the length of the toehold. Uh, there's basically, we put a short toehold here as well. So it's the combination of a handhold and a toehold. And if you just look at zero handhold, then you're just getting toehold mediated strand displacement, conventional toehold. And you get what we're used to, which is if you go from having zero toehold to having seven toehold, the uh, rate increases by about six orders of magnitude. It increases, roughly speaking, exponentially with the toehold length. So that, that everyone's, everyone's familiar with that. As you add a handhold, what you notice is that the reaction rate starts to um, get faster in certain regions, particularly if you've got handholds of length 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 20. So down in this corner in the bottom right, the reaction with the handhold is about four orders of magnitude faster than with just the toehold. Because we've got these yellow colors as opposed to this nearly black color uh, where the handhold is zero. So the handhold is able to accelerate the reaction by about four orders of magnitude, which is great. So it is, it's providing the recognition function we need. If we then go, but what I also want is for this thing to detach at the end, right? Because I want to do this non-equilibrium templating. So you've got a kind of compromise between longer handhold length making it faster, but then making it more sticky and harder for it to pull off at the end. Exactly. And that somehow, that is the essence of non-equilibrium catalysis, which is, this is an example of, that there is this inherent paradox that the catalyst needs to bind strongly to stuff, but not so strongly that it can't let go. So is the, the increased rate with zero toehold length, but a very long handhold, is that simply explained by the fact that the handhold brings the green strand in for long enough so that it can initiate a strand displacement without a toehold, essentially? Yeah, I mean, that's what it does in all cases. It, 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 holds, the, it holds the invader in, in proximity for long enough that it, it triggers the reaction. There are other, um, so there's this thing called the remote toehold, which is like where you don't have directly contiguous toehold with the displacement domain. 
which is kind of similar in the sense that you're holding something in reasonably close proximity and waiting for it to do a displacement. Um, but it doesn't have the same topology. It doesn't have the recognized one strand, but, but bind to the other. Um, but yeah, exactly. What the handhold does is it holds the invading strand close to the duplex. Um, and as Will said, yes, there's some trade-off. Um, we don't want the handhold to be so strong that it never detaches. So if you look, what we've got here is a gel. Um, and basically, we've exposed the, uh, sorry, in the, in, the, in the next box, there's a gel. And we've exposed the um, initial toehold incumbent, the target incumbent duplex to some invaders. We've let the reaction complete itself. And we're saying, okay, what state is the product in? Is the product in the state where it's still stuck by this orange handhold or has it managed to detach? And if you go to the gel, what you can see is if we put in a control lane X, which is basically a um, complex where it can't detach, then it migrates really slowly. Okay, so that means the, the, the band is high on this figure. So in lane X, the band is high. That means we've got a big complex that's struggling to get through this gel. It's struggling to get through the pores of this gel. Um, that's the, that's the three-stranded complex. That's failure to detach. We've also got a control in lane Y, I think, which is just the product that we want, where the product is detached from the template. The income, right? So that's IT, it's labeled IT here. And you see it's migrated much further in the gel than the control where all three are bound. Okay, then if you look at various lengths of handhold, what you will see is that seven and eight, they're migrating about as far as just the product on its own. Nine is going a bit slower. 10 is going a bit slower still, and 20 is basically the same as this one that never detaches. So I'm, I'm a bit, um, could you explain more? Because I, I would expect to get um, kind of distinct bands in the intermediate re regions, like copies of the control X and Y at varying concentrations. Why do they all move together? Well, it's a dynamic equilibrium. Ah, I see. Yeah, so... It's a relatively fast unbinding in this in this eight in this nine ten region, you have relatively fast binding and unbinding, and so as they migrate, they're binding and unbinding from each other. Mm. Now, it's not perfect because eventually, if you've got two things binding and unbinding from each other as they go through a gel, they'll eventually get separated from each other, um, and eventually you would get two bands of separate things, um, but. It, qualitatively speaking, what this tells us is that both the binding and unbinding is appreciable for eight, nine and 10. For eight, we've basically got pretty much 100% attachment. And we can also, we've verified this separately with some fluorescence experiments as well. Um, so, okay, so we're able, using handhold mediated strand displacement to produce a product so the handhold is the recognition domain that allows us to have the reaction, but the product doesn't have to have the handhold bound in it. So can we add 
if we if you go to the figure below, can we add three invaders with different handholds to a given initial target and encumbered complex and pro selectively produce one of them, the one that has the matching handhold? So the invaders are all the same, apart from the fact that their handholds are different. Uh, and that's what's shown in B. If you if you add the invaders with the separate handholds, if you mix them with a template that's got handhold A, you produce A. If you mix them with handhold B, they produce B. And if you mix them with handhold C, they produce C. So that you might say, okay, that just looks like standard toehold mediated strand displacement. If you use the right toehold, you get the right product, right? But it's a bit different here because we're using a short handhold. And in fact, this signal is only detected. We've got a reporter, which is only detecting when the product has detached from the template. So what we're able to do is selectively produce um, A bound to the target or B bound to the target or C bound to the target, even though the the interactions that specify that are not present in the product because the handhold, the only thing that's different, the handhold is just floating around doing nothing. So the equilibrium state of this system would basically be one third A bound to the, in, bound to the target, one third B and one third C, but we're able to make it go to, to any of these three non-equilibrium states, which is only A, only B or only C. So this is, there's a little diagram on the right-hand side of, the, of this box, which, which kind of illustrates that. What we've got is a template with one thing bound to it, and we've got a number of different potential partners. The equilibrium would be an even mix of those partners bound to the, bound to the black monomer, but we're able to go to specifically just one of them. So we're able to template a non-equilibrium state. Now, we are a long way from DNA uh, and copying a polymer. The next step is to have a truly catalytic production of dimers where we don't start with a template that has already got one monomer bound to it. We start off with all the monomers in solution. They bind to the template, they interact with each other, and then they come off. That's what Javi's doing now. It works. Um, the really difficult thing is going to be moving from having a dimer to having a trimer, tetramer, and so on. Because when you have those, you have the very complicated question of how do I make sure it starts in the right place? How do I make sure it doesn't truncate early? These are, these, are, these are problems that you don't get with dimers, but which you do get with longer things. But that's, that's a, that's a, a multi-year goal for us. That's where we're, that's where we're heading. Do you think you'd need to start taking inspiration from biology, adding like a specific polymerase um, that initiates at the right place and, and all of that and keeps rebinding? Or, or can you do it with just monomers and a polymer, do you think? Polymer, yeah, think? I mean, we, we don't want to use a black box. So if we're able to design a polymerase, then I'm happy to do that. But I don't think I'm clever enough to design a polymerase. So what we might what we kind of one of the things we kind of hope to do with this is by trying to build the minimal thing that achieves this non-equilibrium copying 
that we work out, okay, what are the really basic things you need to achieve this? And then go and look at polymerases and look at ribosomes and say, okay, what about them achieves it? Like satisfies these really basic things. Because I don't think people, people tend to ask the question when they ask about how does a ribosome work? They tend to be asking the question of how does a ribosome get 99.99% accuracy rather than 99.9? And we're asking the question, how does it do anything at all? Um, uh, and so we think it gives us a, 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 does give you a different way of looking at things. We we have ideas about how to do this, um, like based on based on simple theory, um, uh, but we don't know if they're going to work yet. Are are all these reactions um, meant to be like one pot reactions that happen all at the same time, or can you, for instance? Um, time gate these reactions by say using microfluidic devices to kind of um add things sequentially you could do that in our for the challenge that we want that would be cheating so it's it's relatively simple it's re if, if you have a time varying protocol it's relatively simple to encourage a copy to assemble on a template under one set of conditions and then remove it under another set of conditions. Um, and if you do that, so, 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 and people have done that. It's re that's a relatively straightforward thing to do. Well, that's, that's not that straightforward, but something we can do. Um, the issue is that it's, it's somehow less, if you wanted an autonomous system, like a cell, a cell can't rely on the external conditions changing in the right way all the time. Now, interestingly, the at the very origin of life, this might have actually been what you had. It's I've seen loads of people who very convincingly argue that replication, in it, the initial replicator would have been driven by wet, dry, or hot, cold cycles. And that Basically, the idea would be you you assemble in the dry phase and you dissociate in the wet phase, uh, or you assemble in the cold phase and you dissociate in the hot phase. Um, but at some point, life works out how to do everything just driving it with chemical fuel. Basically, basically these copy processes in the cell are just powered by an essentially constant non-equilibrium drive of ATP or other other ATP-like molecules. Uh, and so the challenge we've set ourselves is to say, okay, the only thing you're allowed is effectively constant non-equilibrium supply of chemicals, but you're not allowed... Another thing people sometimes talk about is mechanical scission. So there's some really nice work from Rebecca Shulman and Damian Woods and Eric Winfrey, where they, they basically use scission to achieve something similar. We want it all to be just chemical because that's easier to imagine how you have an autonomous system that does that. Maybe, maybe it's too hard. Maybe you need to evolve complicated enzymes before you can become an autonomous cell. Right before you can escape your hydrothermal vent or whatever it is that is giving you your cycle, but that's an interesting question, right? That's an interesting. Can you can you do that? 
how complicated do you need to be to escape your hydrothermal vent? I think that's an interesting question. And hopefully that's maybe something we can answer in molecular programming because we're basically trying to build these systems. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, did you make any... Uh, have you looked into experimentally realizing the molecular Schillard engine you mentioned, or, or is that just a theoretical? We've been trying to convince somebody to help us do it. Um, the challenge is that it's difficult to measure. I think it'd be easy to make. So what we have done, we have built a synthetic system that looks like a push-pull. So my student Ishmael um, and uh, if, those of you who are at the DNA conference this year would have seen um, a talk from a master's student on this system actually, um, have built a, like, uh, a four-way strand displacement mechanism that, that is intended to basically create the push-pull units that are the basis of the molecular cell engine. But, and, we, and that works, it works. But what, what's really difficult is to um, would be to measure, to carefully change these fuel concentrations and then measure the transfer of free energy transfer. Uh, you need to do very precise measurements that are, would be very difficult. Um, but we have, we have tried to convince an experimentalist to work with us on this. Uh, not, not successful yet. That would be really cool if you could, though, to show like Landau's bound. I mean, one thing is, um, people. One thing I complain a lot about is that people always want to talk about heat, um, and every time you, the the idea, people always imagine that when you, when you do something irreversible, you generate heat, and that's not true. In chemical systems, you consume chemical free energy. And chemical free energy can be can be entropic rather than energetic. And if you consume the entropic free energy, then you don't create heat at all. So in this in this in this example, the way we consume free energy is we move one molecule from one fuel buffer to, buffer to another. The energy change is zero, right? So what you actually have to do, you can't just put a you can't just measure the heat given off because it's zero. The, the the, the fuel consumption is is the is the mixing of a you know a high concentration and a low concentration thing which is isotonic isothermal um, and it's a I mean, favorite bugbear of mine people mm. saying heat when they mean entropy generation uh paper where I think they tried to disprove um, that Landau had resolved it because they could use a spin bath to hold the entropy instead of heat and that that somehow undermined the result but yeah as you say it's just it's the information it's the entropy that you yeah. that you can serve um before you were enlightened by thermodynamics did you ever try to build a perpet or think of a perpetual motion machine did i ever try to think of a perpetual motion machine um no, I didn't. I don't think I did. Um, I wish I, I wish I had, but um, I do like the the uh, episode of The Simpsons where where Lisa builds the second builds a perpetual motion machine, and uh, Homer says, "In this house, we obey the second law of thermodynamics." Um, and so, uh, 
you could make the case that um, one of the sort of catchphrases of my groups is in this group, we obey the second law of thermodynamics. But, uh, I like that. Um, if, if people take one thing away from, from your talk today, what do you think it should be? Uh, yeah. So um, making a measurement is costly. And as a consequence, the product of the measurement is useful. <laughs> There's two sides of the same coin. I think that's a really good summary. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Tom. It was really interesting to talk to you about all of these fundamental issues. And I'm really interested to see how you progress on polymer replication. Um, I'm sure there'll be some very interesting results coming in the next few years. Um, this is a great start to our 2021 lineup. Uh, next week, we'll be talking with Joycey Kishi, so stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening. <laughs>